One thing I would think about changing is how we think about metrics. In America, we always think more is more, right? You want to go viral. That was what was deemed a success. And I don't think that that's necessarily always the right metric to use, both in terms of success as well as things that could cause harm, because it's not just a numbers game. It's also a quality game. Have you ever noticed that some of the best ideas come from unexpected places? Your next breakthrough may come from a leader facing similar challenges, but in a completely different sector. Welcome to Chief Influencer. I'm your host, Anthony Shop. Join us as we explore how today's successful leaders inspire, influence, and connect with others. Chief Influencer is a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board, who have teamed up to spotlight how great leaders and communicators are making their impact in the world. This episode is brought to you by the George Washington University's College of Professional Studies, with in-person and online programs, ranging from master's degrees in public relations strategy to certificate programs in digital communications. GW offers more than just the credentials to help working professionals get ahead. It prepares them to be leaders in their field. As a proud GW graduate myself, I can attest that faculty members combine academic rigor with real-world lessons that can't always be found in textbooks. Check out cps.gwu.edu for more information. I am so excited to introduce today's guest, Katie Harbath. Katie is a global leader at the intersection of elections, democracy, civic engagement, and technology. You may have come across her commentary on TV, in the New York Times, or perhaps, like me, you follow her popular Substack. She presents a balanced outlook on the positives and negatives where tech, social media, and public policy converge. Katie is the founder and CEO of Anchor Change, a civic tech strategies firm focused on developing solutions at the intersection of, you guessed it, tech, policy, and business, focusing on global issues related to democracy, elections, and civic engagement online. Her unique expertise stems from her decade-long position as a public policy director at Facebook where she's credited with assembling and leading a global team responsible for managing elections. Katie's teams continue to empower governments and elected officials around the world to use Facebook and Instagram as a way to connect and engage with their constituents. Katie has kept very busy. She's also a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, senior advisor for technology and democracy at the International Republican Institute, fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and more. Katie, we are so excited to have you today. Welcome to Chief Influencer. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I am so excited to dig in with you. I want to start by just asking, you know, leaders have a range of stakeholders, like employees and board members and industry peers that they have to um, manage. And I want to ask by you to start with who are some of the most important people or groups that you have to influence to achieve the impact that you want to make in the world? Absolutely. And, and as somebody who's trying to, as you mentioned, kind of bridge a lot of these different worlds, I sort of view it as a Venn diagram. So I've got those that are in the tech industry and I've got folks that are senior executives. I also have folks that are more junior that follow my my Substack and my writing and might be interested in what I'm talking about. I have people in the policy world, you know, people that work for policymakers, for regulators that are working on these issues. I have members of the media who are covering these topics that are interested. There's academia, there's civil society. And so 
all of them come at it from different points of view. And I can't always cover all of them, but there are points where they all overlap a little bit. And that's sometimes where I can find my my sweet spot in what I'm doing. And while my numbers at times may not be huge, my goal is to be hitting the quality and the types of people that are influencers in this space with what they are doing versus necessarily trying to have just a super broad number of people and appeal, though that would be lovely as well. Well, I think that's a great lesson for leaders because, you know, a lot of the people who I come across in Washington who are focused on these issues, I mean, they know who you are and they follow you. And so having a quality audience of the right people who influence decisions, that's sometimes the most important thing for a leader rather than to just try to go so broad, isn't it? Yeah, I think oftentimes we get, we got hooked this is one of the things about er- being an early tech digital person. If I could go back in time, one thing I would try to think about changing is how we think about metrics, because at least in America, we always think more is more, right? You want to have the most number of something. You want to go viral. That was what was deemed a success. And I don't think that that's necessarily always the right metric to use, both in terms of success as well as things that could cause harm and stuff like that, because... It's not just a numbers game. It's also a quality game as well that you need to be thinking about. Yeah, that's such a good point. We can probably talk about that a little more later when we dive into Substack because I'm excited to discuss that. But I think for folks who may not be familiar with you, I'd love to just go back in time a little bit and ask if you could share more about your experience at Facebook and why you think it's so important that policymakers understand the technology industry and likewise, that technologists understand public policy and democracy. 100%. So not to give my entire background, but I'm a Wisconsin girl originally from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, went to school at UW-Madison and moved to D.C. about 20 years ago. And the first eight years of my career... so. I graduated school in 2003 before Facebook even existed. And the first eight years of my career was the very beginnings of digital campaigning and social media. And when I joined Facebook in 2011, it was still a very small company. And we were still in the process of just trying to get policymakers and politicians and governments to even use the platform to engage with their constituents. Over the course of those 10 years, I built out the teams that work with politicians and governments and how to use the platform. I also coordinated the company's work on elections globally from 2013 to the end of 2019. So I've seen a lot and we can dive into all the different types of issues and things that I may have seen during that time. But there is no doubt that like, not only do politicians need to use social media to get their messages out. But also, and so that is why politicians should care about what these tech companies are doing. We also know that technology has had both a positive and negative impact on our society. And we spent a lot of time, kind of the first 15 years, wearing rose-colored glasses, thinking that the internet was going to be this great democratizer. And then we realized there were a lot of downsides that we needed to mitigate as well. And we're still in the middle of that. And to really solve this is going to be a multi-stakeholder approach. You're going to need the technology and the technologists who can move really fast, who are going to be innovative in thinking about this. And so, but you're also going to get regulated. We already seen it. They're starting to get regulated, maybe not in the federal level in the US, but they are in Europe and other places. And so they need to understand where each is coming from. They need to understand, the policymakers need to understand how the technology works. The technologists need to understand how 
laws are being written, how regulations might work. How can they also help these folks understand their thinking and where they're moving towards? And I really think we're building up to a new system of checks and balances in our society around everything issues of data privacy, of speech, um, and many others. And we're still in the middle of all that chaos right now. And so the only way we're going to do that successfully is if they're all talking to one another and trying to be sharing lessons, be collaborative, having these great discussions as we try to figure out the solutions to all this. Seems like your goal is you're trying to be a bridge since you've sort of been in the middle of this world where you realize those bridges, it's a newer area. Those bridges hadn't been built before. I'm a bridge. I'm a ferry boat, whatever uh, metaphor you want to use between the two. But And it's a translation thing. They speak different languages. They move at different speeds. And so very much so, not just between the tech and the policy world, but again, I mentioned that civil society, academia, um, media, that you also need to be incorporating into all of this. Maybe your zip line scary, <laughs> Katie, because that sounds scary to people sometimes, which I think is partly what you help people overcome is that they have some fear, huh? Yeah, I think that um, I, it can feel very overwhelming. It can feel there are so many issues that are coming. There are so many changes that are happening in real time. And, you know, not everybody is used to drinking from a fire hose while trying to rebuild a plane in the sky without a parachute on. Um, and that's certainly a lesson. That's something you learn over time. In fact, I think campaigns helped me to prep me for Facebook life when I was there of how crazy this can be. But one of the things I taught, I know we're going to talk about my Substack later, but one of the things I sometimes talk about in there and with other people is how to build up those skill sets of being able to make decisions or understand how to move forward in a space that at times can feel like, what does one person's role really have? Does it have impact in it? Where do I even start? How do you not feel paralyzed by it, but kind of think about what is that first step you can take? Then what's the next and what's the next in terms of trying to to think about where your unique impact can be? Yeah, we've we've referenced the Substack a few times, so I'd love to just go there. I mean, y- you get your message out on a variety of channels, including Twitter or X and LinkedIn. Um, but it's been about two years since you launched your Substack, and you know, some folks who are listening in probably follow you or others on Substack, and some just may not be that familiar with it yet. So what can you tell us about Substack, why you chose it, and how things are going with that two years in? Absolutely. So first and foremost, the Substack is also called Anchor Change. It's at anchorchange.substack.com. I'm sure I can convince you to put a link in the show notes um, sure, for people to uh, to find it. It's a great so when I left, I love it. So when I left Facebook, um, I spent about a year, the year of COVID, really thinking about what I wanted next in my career. Because the end of 2020 was 10 years at Facebook for me. I was turning 40 and it was going to be the end of the 2020 election. And so if there was ever a time to make a change, it felt like that might be a good one. And I knew I wanted to stay in the tech and democracy space. I knew I wanted to continue to work both in the US and international. And I developed three pillars of where I wanted my work to focus on. One was mentorship. I really enjoyed being a manager. I also really like working with people um, as they're trying to think about how to get into this space or what their next career move might be. The second one was voice, building, continuing to build up my brand as a thought leader in this space. 
I had done a lot of public speaking before, but it was on behalf of Facebook or behalf of whomever I was working for. It wasn't my own, always my own voice. And so that was another one. And then the third one was I was billed because I didn't want to just be talking about these problems. I also wanted to be contributing to solutions to those problems. So around the voice one, you know, it was an era of and still is of everybody kind of creating a sub stack. It reminds me of the early 2000s when I created my Blogspot blog. Like everybody was creating a Blogspot blog um, around it all. And I took the first six months of me being off of Facebook to work with a writing coach a little bit to kind of, I had to build up my confidence in my writing. I hadn't written a lot when I was at at Facebook. Um, I was a journalism major, but I hadn't really exercised those muscles in a while. Um, I also had started tweeting a bit more and kind of getting comfortable and kind of thinking about, okay, what would I want my newsletter to focus on? What would I want to write about? How often would I want to write, et cetera? And I really liked Substack because I found the interface to be really easy to use. Um, I liked how you own your email list. So should they ever cease existing or I'd be happy with choices they're making or something like that, I can take that email list and port it to somewhere else. And then um, they didn't have this when I first launched it, but now they've added things like recommendations that has just been so helpful for me in terms of discoverability by people about my Substack to continue to get subscriptions. Uh, LinkedIn and others have also been great contributors to that. Um, but I've just been a big fan of how they're very writer centric. I do like also their their free speech values, which I know we can debate about and, and argue about, but I did really appreciate those. And so, yeah, I started it in September, six, September 16th, 2021, which was like a couple of days before the Facebook files and the Francis Haugen stories and the Wall Street Journal dropped, which was not timed. I did not know that was going to happen. But Immediately, people were like having somebody like me who had been on the inside to share a bit more of my perspective of the stories that they were seeing was I I found a lot of value in it because it helped me first and foremost to just think through where how, where I stood on these things. And starting the newsletter is really for me, selfishly. I was like, if I can get others to read it, fantastic. But I want to I want to improve my writing. I want a, a process in which I can think through how I'm thinking about these things, develop those talking points, those theories, et cetera. And I knew that writing could do that. And so, and then I really love the discipline of having to write the newsletter and having, I work as a journalism major, deadlines are key for me. Um, and so they're self-imposed, but having them um, has been a huge uh, help in helping me to just make sure that I continue to work on this skill set and trying to get it out there. I want to talk a little bit about the evolution of it in a second, but first, um, you mentioned you know when you were speaking on behalf of Facebook, that's very different from sort of finding your own voice. And I think a lot of leaders probably, even if they are in a role where you know they may speak on behalf of a brand, they also have forums where they have to you know find their own voice, and there's an opportunity to do that. So, um, can you talk a little bit about? your process around that of finding your your voice because I think that's something that many people would be interested in. And I think I'm still trying to find it. I think that it continues to evolve, right? And thinking through it. First and foremost was there's a difference between being on your own like I am versus inside of a company, right? Um, when I was inside the company, the things I was talking about, frankly, it's not that I 
disagreed with him, not at all, because that would have been very hard for me to go out and publicly, you know, defend or talk about what we were doing. But what I was able to do when I left the company is now I can think critically back on the things that decisions I was a part of and I made. And what would I do differently? What would I do the same? How can I describe that to people? How can I take the lessons learned from that period of time and now apply them to what would I do if I were in the situation of these other folks that are now having to grapple with some of these issues, but they're slightly they're slightly different. And my goal in in developing this was that you know when I left Facebook, people it was March of twenty one. And it, the only people that were really speaking out were either tech haters or they worked inside the companies. Mm. And I th- really thought there needed to be a more nuanced voice that could bring that perspective to these situations and also provide it from a center right perspective. I just didn't see that out there in the ecosystem. And that was something I wanted to be known for. And I knew that when I came out of the company, different people were going to have different thoughts of what I might actually be trying to do, what were my motives, what would I be doing? And I could say what my motives were, but I knew that it was really going to be my actions and what I did over time that would really back that up. Um, And so that's also another thing of sort of that thought process of finding my voice in writing was I try to, A, share a bit about myself at every newsletter of sort of like where I am, what I'm doing helps them to get a little bit, know a little bit more about who I am. And then when I go into the analysis piece, um, also weaving maybe my story or my perspectives, or even even trying to call out what my own biases might be as I'm trying to go through that so that people can kind of really try to under know where I'm coming from and why I'm saying the things that I'm saying. Yeah. You know, um, I think it's can be difficult for thought leaders to grapple with the fact that you have to say something um, that may not be popular with everybody, right? Because if you're just sort of being super neutral and boring, you know, you don't add a lot of value to the conversation. So, you know, last year you wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times and it was titled, I worked at Facebook. It's not ready for this year's election wave. And it strikes me that that might have been a, a, a big decision to decide to write that piece in such a broad forum and and kind of, you know, put yourself out there in that way. Can you talk about that? Yeah. And to be honest, I wouldn't have picked that headline. Um, So a little yeah, a bit... A lot of people don't know that the headlines are usually written by somebody else. And so that uh, is kind of a yeah challenge. So the story of that op-ed is actually quite... Well, I find it quite interesting. <laughs> Others might not. But So one of the things that has been my, if there's one talking point that I can say has been associated with me since January 2020 is the number of elections happening next year in 2024. So I had just been removed from the Facebook staff in late 2019. I didn't know. I just lost my most favorite job I ever had. And I was trying to figure out a new role for myself within the company And I was like, okay, every role I've had in my career never existed before. So let's sit down. Let's kind of look at, I knew there's always big election cycles every five years. I was like, let's sit down and kind of look at where's this, all this going over the next five years? Where, where would there, where could I maybe contribute? 
And I'm sitting down. I was I just remember it distinctly because I was at the Ritz Carlton bar in Washington, D.C., meeting with a mentor of mine and he left. I'm like, I'm going to have one more old fashioned and kind of think through and kind of think through this a bit more. And it occurs to me that 2024, in addition to a U.S. presidential election, we were going to have elections in India, Indonesia, Ukraine, Taiwan, Mexico, the United Kingdom and the European Parliament amongst a bunch of others. And I'm like, Mexico's every six years, India and Indonesia every five years, U.S. is every four years. Has this ever happened before? This feels like kind of big. And so being the dork that I am, I go all the way back to the 1950s and discover that, sure enough, it's never happened before. So I say all of that because I'm like, this is what I want to work on. This is what I want to work on, whether it's at Facebook or not. And so I I leave Facebook. I actually write an op-ed about this. I share it with a few people. It sits kind of dormant. I'm not quite sure where the right home for it might be. Everyone that I bring it to is like, what? why are you bringing this to us? We're worried about 2020. Who cares about 2024? It's the fall of 2021. And the Francis Haugen stuff is coming out. And the New York Times reaches out to me to see if I'd be interested in writing an op-ed because I had been talking to some of their reporters about this stuff and their reporters had recommended me to them. And I was like, how convenient. Here's this op-ed. I want to really focus it on 24. They really wanted to focus it on 22. We had to have a lot of back and forth on that. Um, and I I was really torn about doing it um, because on one hand, Listen, I still have a lot of friends that are at the company. I still have a lot of friends that are doing this work. I know something like this makes their lives harder. On the other hand, I'm also trying to establish myself. And what, how big of a platform a New York Times Sunday op-ed in print? Like that's, for some people, can be a once in a lifetime opportunity in which to do that. And... I think I would still do it again. I really wish I could change the headline. <laughs> I really wish that because I really wanted it to be kind of looking at the industry more as a whole. I wanted it to be looking towards 2024. And if you read the story, it does read like that. Mm-hmm. It's just that on headline is an unfortunate one. Um, has there been fallout from that? A hundred percent. Unfortunately, um, I I hope that over time, I people will understand why I made the decision that I did on it. But um, at the end of the day, it was the right call for me. And I do have to, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy to do any of this stuff. And I talk about that with a lot of folks because you do have to make a lot of trade-offs and you can't control how other people are going to react. And so you have to do what's best for you. And only you are going to know if it's the right decision. Yeah. Well, and then there's this other element that it's a message that you felt really passionately needed to get out in the world, right? Yeah, it was a message I thought that really needed to get out into the world. I also made a decision that people are talking about what we had done in the past at Facebook. They were talking about these issues. And I didn't want others defining my story about or defining my role or my point of view in that. And so I've made a conscious decision that I am going to be proactive in telling my story and my perspective 
of not only what, you know, what, how we might have made decisions when we were inside the company without going breaking. I don't want to break NDAs. I'm not a whistleblower. I'm none of that. I'm trying to balance that, that art while also trying to help us to use those lessons of thinking about how we go forward. Yeah. And you, I've heard you say that phrase before that I'd love to dive into more own my own story. Um, that, you know, it feels like there's this challenge that a lot of leaders face about how do they balance sort of their professional brand and point of view with their personal brand. And, you know, we live in this murky world where you can't really separate those. Um, and you made the decision that you were going to own your story. You were going to get your message out. You were going to get create channels. And I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that because that might be something that others are are on the cusp of doing or thinking about doing. And it might be helpful to hear more of your logic around that. Yeah, I think that um, first and foremost, in in building up anyone's own reputation, there's a lot of different aspects to that, right? It doesn't it doesn't happen overnight. It's all about the day to day interactions with people, how people feel after engaging with you. One thing I was going to say about a lot of this, there's a difference between kind of throwing bombs versus people being like, that's an interesting perspective I haven't thought of before, right? That That's that's a unique way of, of thinking about it. And I think as people are, are thinking about building that up, you kind of got to think about it over your entire lifetime and career arc not just the one where you are where you are is right this moment will be a chapter in that that will contribute to the entire book of your your life and so for me also part of making the decision of going out on my own versus taking another full-time job was my desire to do more writing analysis and things of this nature that would be much harder for me to do if I were inside of a company because I'd have to represent their interest as well. And you'd have to balance those. And that can be very hard. Now I may someday go back into a company. I, I don't know, you know, who knows what the future might hold for it, but like this period in time for me right now is another way for me to help build up that brand in a way that I have a lot more control and freedom over and I'm lucky enough to also still be able to get consulting contracts and things of that nature to help me to do so. And so for folks who are kind of thinking about this as they think about the ebbs and flows of their career and how they might want to think about that, that's something to think about. There's also ways that you can also continue to build up your your brand without needing to dive into thorny topics. So I know friends who use LinkedIn to share job openings in their industry. Mm-hmm. They will use it to share links that they're following of what's happening in their industry or that they find interesting. Stuff that's a little bit more, um, it's it can be considered bland, but it's useful. Yeah. It's useful for people because they might not have the time. They don't know that those job links exist. There's a, there's a curation aspect that can also be a very useful role for somebody to have even if you feel like you can't necessarily be out there being like, here's my thoughts on these issues of the day. Right. Yeah. I can think of folks who, you know, started sharing job postings through a little email list and they, they literally built their brand and built that to a company of its own as a service. And so it is true. You can build that brand in, in many ways. It doesn't have to necessarily be through a provocative topic. You talked about writing and something that I really, um, 
appreciate about you, Katie, is that you have been willing to say, because sometimes people sort of don't say these things out loud. I worked with a coach on this. I worked with a coach on that. You know, you've kind of talked pretty openly about getting help to pursue the goals that you have. And I wonder if you could just share a little bit more about that. Cause sometimes leaders have these coaches and they, you know, they, they act like they're doing everything alone. They don't tell people about it. So I really appreciate that you are willing to say that. One of my principles as well that I, I realized a couple of months after leaving Facebook was that I, we don't talk enough about the hard stuff. Some of those hard, hard things or the vulnerabilities of this. And I think it is a mistake, particularly for women, um, but it applies to everybody of wanting to have this facade of doing it all alone when it's not true. And it doesn't, or this facade of always being happy, always that things aren't always, you know, going, that things are always going correct and not sharing when things aren't going great. Or if you're feeling down or if you're feeling exhausted and I didn't want to contribute to that culture. I wanted to, um, I've written a few pieces. Some of my most popular pieces have nothing to do about tech. I wrote, I wrote one called Reclaiming the Fairy Tale about being a single woman that I probably got the most response, one of the biggest responses uh, from people on um, about that. And so I wanted people to know, I wanted them to also know these resources are out there. I I I frankly didn't know or even think about like the woman I work with on my Substack. Uh, I found her in Substack notes. I feel a little bit like the universe center to me because for weeks I've been like, I need somebody to help me up level my Substack. I just need a thought partner that I can bounce ideas off of or can get be a, you know somebody who doesn't know me that can look at it, give me a good critical review of it of where I can improve. And I was on Substack Notes one day and her thing popped up and I was like, oh, this looks interesting and scheduled a session with her. And she's been fantastic in helping me out. Same thing with um, the pot. Uh, I'm planning my own podcast. Um, I went on Upwork to get somebody to help me uh, just uh, tweak my trailer copy because I was like, I need somebody to just take a look at this. And I love Upwork for helping me with all sorts of different things. And this woman who who applied for it is a podcast coach. Mm. And so she a, helped me with the trailer. And then I booked a session with her where she walked me through some of the tools and stuff that, that she uses. I've used executive coaches over the years. I've, I've used all different sorts, whether you call them coaches or whatever they are. For me, especially somebody who now works alone, having these resources that you're not Sometimes we don't want to burden our friends and our family with things. And sometimes you want an uh, an outsider's perspective who doesn't have, um, may not know you as well. I just found it incredibly helpful. Same thing with a writing coach. Like you don't have to spend a ton of money and you don't have to, sometimes just one session is all you need yeah. to help give you a little bit of perspective. I love that. I just love, I really appreciate that you share that. And I think, you know, I know folks sometimes who get really stuck and then, you know, they do find a coach and like, sometimes, you know, it just takes a little bit to kind of unstick them. And, you know, we don't have to do everything alone. Speaking of your coach on Substack, you know, two years in, you have, you know, about 5,000 subscribers at this point, you have a great audience of very influential people, but you have made some changes to level up your Substack and you wrote about it very openly. So folks can go to anchor change on Substack and probably read it through the archive. But Give me the cliffs notes of that. 
because I think for folks who might be looking at their newsletters or their strategy, um, you really, you know, were very thoughtful about how to serve your audience. And I'd love just to, to go over some of the changes that you are making or have made. When I originally started the Substack, at first it was it was a sort of analysis. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to add a what I'm reading section. And that kept getting longer. And then I was like, I, I keep this calendar of key events. And I'm like, this would probably be something that would be helpful to folks. I should toss that into the newsletter too. And I was getting feedback from folks of being like, oh, your calendar is so helpful. Your what I'm reading is so helpful. Like they love it all. But then I also got feedback from somebody where they're like, we feel like you're trying to boil the ocean a little bit. I also kept running up against Substack's limits oh. a lot because it was get, all of it was getting longer and longer. And so one of the things my coach recommended is she goes, you need to break this up into three. Do analysis one day, do the, the calendar another day, do the links the other day. Um, it doesn't change the amount of time you're spending on the newsletter. And people don't have that much time. And so by splitting it up for them, they're able to also better digest it. I've been talking to also folks at Substack. They were talking about how it's some people are doing short form audio, like a five, 10 minute clip in the morning, sort of an analyzing uh whatever's happening in the day. I'm I'm exper- I'm gonna maybe experiment with doing like an ask me anything type discussion thread or like do hour-long webinars. And I put a poll in my, you know, in one of my newsletters asking people, I do this periodically too, like, hey, here's what I'm thinking about doing. What would you like? Yeah. What would you be most interested in? And that helps to give me some signal because I can't do it all and I don't want to burn out. And so if I want a signal of maybe where should I focus first, the readers really help me to do that. Yeah. I love that you share, first of all, that openly about the, you know, the changes you're making and experimenting with. But I think taking those types of content that you produce and breaking them out is really smart because, you know, we all subscribe to lots of stuff and, you know, you can only read so much. And so being able to signal like, hey, maybe I don't really need the calendar this week. So maybe that's something I'm going to just archive. But I, I really want to read the what you're reading because it's like a great um you know, bibliography of like some of the top articles that we should be taking paying attention to. So I really think the fact that you've broken that out is smart. And I imagine no matter what industry a leader is in, they could probably take that advice and and do something with it. So I appreciate well, you sharing that. And keep us posted on the audio thing that you're doing because I'd love to hear um, you know, if if you experiment with that, if it sticks. Um when it comes to technology and just trying new things, I mean, obviously a lot of leaders have told me they struggle with balancing what new technology they should use and you know the time it takes you come from tech so you're obviously in a position where you're going to pay attention to this stuff and you know things that look like they're really small can kind of blow up um i'm wondering if you could tell us you know what are the social media tools that you're leaning into these days and what are you spending more time or less time on compared to maybe where you were when you got started so first and foremost, I would say to everyone is you don't need to use them all. And you might even use them in different ways. You might experiment. I continue to I continue to do that. Um, and it continues to evolve. So right now, um, LinkedIn is actually for from a professional standpoint, has become one of the most important social social networks. It's where I'm getting most of my traffic for the newsletter, 
And so I do probably spend quite quite a bit of time just scrolling through LinkedIn every day, making sure I'm posting links to my newsletter. It's been fantastic. And also making sure that my LinkedIn profile is you know up to date. I've got a lot of great information stuff because I have gotten a lot of really great leads and stuff through my LinkedIn, uh, my LinkedIn stuff. I, I still post on X Twitter. Um, and I do post on threads, which is, uh, Meta's new sort of Twitter clone. I've been experimenting with blue sky, Mastodon T2, some of the other Twitter replacements, but they haven't, they haven't necessarily worked. I'm not getting as much out of them. And I just only have so much time in the day. And then for my own personal entertainment, Instagram and TikTok are are where I'm at. Instagram is really where I share more of like what's happening in my person, you know, I'm traveling or I'm sharing pictures and stuff right. like that. It's not as much necessarily work-related stuff that I'm that I'm doing. You know, you wrote in an article for Modern Diplomacy, 2023 will continue to see the rise of emerging smaller platforms such as Telegram, Truth Social, Rumble. Getter, Parler, Discord, Twitch, Mastodon, and many others, um, and that democracies need to stay on top of these challenges and keep up with the fluidity of the tech space. And I'm just you know, wondering, how is it possible for leaders to keep track of this evolving landscape, whether they're doing it because they're writing laws or they're just trying to get their message out? And I guess for me, a natural case in point is that TikTok is so popular now, particularly among young people but it's banned on US government devices. So how are these folks supposed to get their message out to young people when they can't use the platform that's the most popular among young people? I mean, what advice do you have for leaders in this world that we live in? Sure, so I'm gonna take those two separately, one on the sure. TikTok question and one on like how to stay on top of everything. On the TikTok question, one thing that I'm really watching as we go into the 2024 cycle in particular, but we've already seen the Biden White House do is utilize influencers. Mm -hmm. So they themselves don't necessarily have accounts on these platforms, but they are inviting people who do, who have either not even super high follower numbers. There's a thing called a micro influencer. Again, what we were talking about at the beginning is their audience, somebody that's a group of really influential people. Um, maybe they don't have to have big numbers, but bringing them to DC. TikTok did this, but they're hearing too. Bring them to DC, have them do briefings, have them meet people, have them be able to create content and have them help to get a lot of these messages out. And I suspect we're already seeing stories of campaigns doing that. I think we'll continue to see stories of that of that being the case with with TikTok. Obviously it's going to be a it's going to be a decision every organization is going to have to make on their own and what they feel comfortable about and understanding the security and other concerns on it. Same thing, you know, personally, what people feel comfortable or not with doing. I I don't, it's such an individual choice. The only recommendation I make to people is just make sure you understand the privacy settings, the security settings, what you feel comfortable with on doing that. On the staying up to date with everything. Well, first you can follow my Substack yeah. <laughs> if you'd like. Um, I also highly recommend Casey Newton's platformer, Alex Kontankowitz's Big Technology. Um, there's a lot of different... And then also in the DC world, um, if that's where you are, um, uh, Technology 202 with the Washington Post and Digital Bridge with Politico are also two really great newsletters that I follow uh, 
morning consult has a lot of really great links. So you can get overwhelmed with it. But I think that experimenting with and finding, you know, two or three newsletters of folks that are really following this closely can help you to just try to stay on top of, okay, what's launching, where is it going, et cetera. But do you know that we are in another really volatile time where we're going to see all sorts of different entities be popping up, um, not just in the social networking space, but obviously AI, podcasting, streaming, audio, all of these different things. We're in a big, again, we're in a big sea change right now. We're we're going to look back at this period of time as like quite chaotic. And so I think the most important thing is having a plan, but also being flexible in that plan and sort of doing maybe more frequent gut checks in terms of like, is this plan reaching the audience that we want to reach? Is this the right thing that we need to be doing? Or do we need to adapt and change to something else? Yeah. And it goes to the point of, you know, what you live through your own experience, which is finding an expert, finding a coach, finding a partner to sometimes help you make sense of things that aren't your core competency, right? Because if you have an audience that you know is um, younger and on platforms that you don't have the expertise in, well, figure out, you know, where can you get that, that outsource that expertise and bring in a partner to help you with it? Yeah. And that could be a coach. It can be a digital agency. Like it all depends on who you are and, and what you what you need. But there's definitely folks out there that can help you to think through this and you don't have to go it alone. Yeah. I want to ask you kind of as we wrap up, I know that um, influencers, cheap influencers tell us that they don't always get inspiration from their direct industry peers, but sometimes they kind of come from unexpected places. And I'm you know, wondering for you outside of the worlds of public policy or technology, where have you gotten inspiration as you've built up your following and built up your thought leadership? Um, where do you look for that? What has inspired you? I There's a lot of different newsletters that I've been following. There's one, a woman named Amy O'Dell, who used to be Anna Wintour's uh, one of her personal assistants, she covers the fashion world, which I don't follow super closely, but it's it's fun to have a little bit of behind the scenes. On uh, there's another woman named Kate Hill who has this uh, Substack called Come On C A M O N T Journals, but she's in she's like in this rural place in France, and she has this writer in residence thing that I like kind of really wanted to. It sounds <laughs> really lovely. She's a cook and she's a French cook and she and she does these things. There's other women. There's one woman, um, I think her name's Emily McDowell, but she like got viral super fast with these fantastic greeting cards she was writing. And she's been writing this series about burnout and what it means and how she's trying to repivot her life after having this tremendous success and then this burnout and now trying to think about the next thing. And so it's just been really inspirational to find these different stories and these different folks and the people who, you know, are finding their own niche that they want to share and how they're choosing to do that. And then how can I apply that to my own niche that I'm trying to get out there? Mm, I love that. I think it's just such a good um, practice for leaders to look outside of their sphere because you never know where, you know, like in your, uh, the cook or the fashion person might do something that you say, oh, I could, I could apply that. And uh, it'll be really unique for your audience because, you know, they probably don't 
follow that person. And it broadens your audience. So I actually commented on one of Emily's posts and she responded back and I ended up getting a few subscribers from that. And it's helping to people are like, they're like, oh, if you're interested in this, you're seeing it in the news and you want somebody who has a really interesting perspective on that, go go follow Katie and to kind of circle it back to the very beginning of this conversation. I do have a set audience that I'm writing for, but it doesn't mean there's not a broader population who might be interested in it too that are for me, I, I love to have them. They're you know gravy on top. They might not be my core folks, but by branching out and looking for those opportunities, you also branch out your ability of, of having influence and um, broadening your sphere. Yeah. And, I, you know, especially coming up with all these elections and everything going on, there are folks that this may not be the world they work in, but we all have a vested interest, don't we? And as users of technology and citizens in a democracy that, uh, you know, we want to understand like what's going on in the world around us. And you're really making that more digestible for folks who, you know, may not uh, be paying attention to a, a briefing at a think tank or something like that. Well, I appreciate you saying that because it's definitely the goal of like, can I find the right balance between giving people who maybe aren't paying as much attention to this, what they might need, but also going into the in-depth components of it that those that are really in the thick of it can also gain something from. Yeah. And great reminder, by the way, of why Substack is a great platform for folks who want to get their message out as a thought leader, because just like the example you shared, um, there are recommendations where others can find you. And that's something that not every sort of email platform has, or, you know, a blog on your website would necessarily have built in. So I appreciate you sharing that, that specific example and and a way that you engaged another person on Substack that, you know, was relevant so that you were able to get some of their folks to pay attention to you. Really smart, really smart. Well, and I think though, it also goes to everybody as you're thinking through this needs to think about what are the bright platforms for you? And what's going to really work for you and really understanding what your goals are as you're going into this, how much time you're going to have to put into it, playing around with some of them to what are the ones that feel instinctively to you easier to use and that you can understand um, are really important. So Substack is working fantastic for me. I do highly recommend people check it out, but there may be maybe LinkedIn is your spot. Um Maybe, you know, a Patron or um, or Patreon, not Patron. That's the tequila. Uh, okay. Patreon. Um, or maybe it is MailChimp. Maybe it is. Maybe it is just you. I know somebody here in D.C. who has a very popular thing that it gets put out quarterly and it's just sent out through my understanding Outlook. So, yeah. you know, it it's really you just really need to kind of think through it, but don't overthink. The yeah. number one piece of advice I can give people is just start creating. Yeah. You're only going to learn as you continue to do it. And you can sit here and fiddle around as much as you want, but you're going to get more anxious. You're going to get more nervous mm-hmm. about it. And you're smart people. Everyone is listening to this. They're smart people. Go with the rule. Like, you know, you, you, you have a general sense of what's okay to put out there or not. If you're worried about it, get a gut check from somebody. But like, just start creating and don't overthink it. Yeah. You know, we interviewed uh, Bruce Melman as one of our chief influencers. And I don't know if that's who you were referencing, but he sends out a quarterly 
research deck. And I think it's just done sort of through normal email, but he has you know over 10,000 subscribers now. So it is a good reminder. He was who I was talking oh, about. He was. Everybody knows versus, Yeah. But I love his stuff. I have modeled my quarterly report, and I said this openly, as like I wanted to marry Bruce Mellon and Mary Meeker mm. into something for tech policy. And I'm I gotta rethink of how I'm gonna think. I think I need to re rework how I do that quarterly report because I don't know how helpful it is to people or not. Um, and I've been able to reuse it in in other ways. But that's just another example, A, of experimenting. But Bruce has been so helpful to me with some tips and encouragement and thinking about how to be working on these things that I, A, want to pay it forward for other people, but also continuing to think about, okay, that's really working for him. It's I, I love the idea. I may need to keep adapting it. How might it work? You know? That's the fun part of this is like you're not it's not set in stone once I get start putting something out there. Yeah. I can keep adapting it. Yeah, embrace that evolution, not don't have a mindset that you're going to figure it out and it's going to be done, but all this stuff as we've been talking about is evolving and so you're going to have to continue to evolve. I think that's such a great attitude to have. Katie, we know obviously to find you we can go to anchorchange.substack.com. Where else should people look if they want to follow you or see what you're up to? I am not hard to find on the internet. So the Twitter, X, Instagrams, LinkedIn's um at Katie Harbath. Um you can find me and feel free to connect with me in any of those ways. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today to share your story and congrats on being recognized as a chief influencer. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Chief Influencer, a production of Social Driver and the Communications Board. If you know a leader who should be featured as a chief influencer, please nominate them at chiefinfluencer.org. For show notes and more, visit us at chiefinfluencer.org or follow Chief Influencer on LinkedIn. Until next time.